Wow. That's beautiful. Thank you, choir. Abby, good to have you here today with us as well. It's good to have Dr. Jim Ayler back. Welcome back, Jim. Lauren, good to have you back as well. Who's those sopranos up there? Were y'all hitting those high notes, Lisa? I saw you. Carolyn, I know Carolyn can hit those notes. Man, awesome. Becca, are you, are you getting those high notes too, Becca? Awesome, awesome. That's amazing. Amazing. Beautiful job, choir. It is dangerous indeed to say, here am I, Lord. Jim says that as someone who answered the Lord's call to go to Korea and to move his family to the peninsula of Korea and to share God's word as a missionary full time over there for how many years? 20 plus years. It is dangerous indeed, but it is the best way to live. We are convinced as Christians that when we, like little Samuel in the house of Eli, when he heard the Lord calling and he said, here I am, Lord, and Isaiah before the majesty of God in the throne room who said, Lord, here am I, send me. When we do that, we live the abundant life that Christ came to bring us, and there is no other better way to live and to flourish and to thrive than to answer God's call on your life. I pray that today as we dive into God's word together that we will hear God's call anew and that we will trust and obey, that we will respond in obedience today. We're going to start a two-part series just for the next two weeks um, on John chapter 17. It's a powerful passage. It's the last part of the farewell discourse. Once we finish John 17, we move quickly into the betrayal and arrest and crucifixion and resurrection, the passion narrative. So we know that Jesus is in this upper room moment, right? And after he had washed his disciples' feet and cleansed them, then they celebrated the Passover meal together and had this amazing time of worship there in the city of Jerusalem, knowing that in a matter of hours he would soon be executed on a cross. It's Maundy Thursday still, it's Thursday evening, and after they did these things, they, they had a discussion, he gave them his final instructions, and now he prays a prayer over them. These instructions that, that he gave them prior to this in John 16, Jesus assures his disciples about what things are gonna be like after he departs back to the Father. He says, you guys are gonna be on the forefront of this whole new thing called the church, and they start to panic. And he says, don't panic, I'm gonna send you a helper, the advocate, I'm gonna send you the parakletos, the Holy Spirit to help you, to live in you, to fill you, to empower you. And last week we saw that ultimately his, his final words to his disciples were that yes, in this world you're gonna have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome this fallen, broken world. So now this morning as we begin chapter 17, it's what scholars usually refer to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer because we see in it our great high priest who's interceding on our behalf to the Father as our great high priest. His teaching ministry is finished and now Jesus turns his attention from his disciples to his father. He turns his attention from earth up into the heavenly realms. And it's such a powerful moment in the gospel 
of John because of all the tension. We know what's about to happen. And he prays this beautiful prayer right in this incredibly tense moment. And it's a, a powerfully intimate moment between Jesus and his disciples. You know, when we pray with somebody, it's a deeply bonding experience. It, it's intimate because in prayer, we move beneath the surface things. Oh, it sure is hot. Yeah, it's 90 degrees. The choir's still not wearing robes because it's 97 degrees today. We hit a record, I think, for the next five days. It'll be a record. All that stuff's fine and great, but it's just surface. When we pray together, we get down to the, the core of who we are. We get down to that part of us that is the essence of our being, the spiritual part on which we are building our lives. Therapists, even secular therapists, tell us that when couples pray together, it's one of the most effective things that they can do to build unity and trust in their relationship. So what a privilege it is to have this record of Jesus' prayer, to hear the words that Jesus prays over his disciples and over us, the future followers of Christ. Prayer, you know, is one of the most powerful spiritual resources that we've been given by God and Jesus to approach the throne in prayer. This morning we had a meeting and Ed reminded us, Nathan's preaching on a prayer today. Let's just stop and pray right now. It was really a powerful time. So with all that in mind, why don't we stand in honor of God's word if you're able to as I read our text for today out of John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, the Bible contains all kinds of incredible wisdom for life and for living, for learning. Things like God helps those who help themselves. That's a good one. The Lord will never give you more than you can handle. Yeah, amen. Money is the root of all evil. Preach it. Yeah, that's, that's all good stuff. I'm terrible. I'm sorry. That's, most of you know none of that's in the Bible, right? None of that is actually found in Holy Scripture. But people think it is. People often quote things that they believe to be in Scripture that aren't actually there. In our age of increasing biblical illiteracy, it's important to know what the Bible actually says and what it actually does not say. One thing I've heard people misquote often from the Bible is that as God's people, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. I'm not saying that's a misquote exactly, but that's not exactly what Scripture says either. Be in the world, but not of the world. Usually when people say that, they're, they're justifying some reason to separate ourselves from the worldly people around us. Oh, we're to be not of the world, so don't talk to those people. Don't associate with those people because we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Well, I'm not saying that's not true, but is that the best way to interpret this text today? I don't think so. We're gonna talk today about what it looks like to be not of the world, yes, but sent into the world which I believe is the real thrust of this text. But first, before we get to that part, let's talk about why Jesus prays this prayer at all. In the first few verses of this prayer, all the commentaries on the high priestly prayer say that Jesus is praying for himself. And I guess I can see that, but it's not how I pray for myself. What is Jesus asking in this prayer? Does he need something from God? Is he, is he asking God to do something that he cannot do? Does he not already know what's going to happen? Of course he does. And of course Jesus is God and has a unity with the Father. So he's praying this prayer not, not for himself or for his sake, but for us. It's for our sake this is recorded in Scripture. It's for our sake that Jesus prays this prayer in the first place because he loves us and wants us to know these things that he shares with the Father. Look at verse one. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. Remember when Jesus' mother told him back at that wedding in Cana when the wine started to run out and she was panicked and she said, do something. And he said, woman, my time has not come yet. It's not time yet. My hour is not here. And then in the temple in chapter 6 and chapter 7, when Jesus is teaching these wild teachings that are blowing people away and they just can't fathom that he's saying that he is one with the Father and they want to kill him, but no one arrests him. Why not? 
The scripture says it's because his hour had not yet come. But at this point in the text, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. This is it. This is what I was sent here to do. This is the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, but also it's the climax of the story of everything ever. It's the, the climax. Remember when I showed you the, the, the ninth grade uh, English graph? Some of you, it's been a long time since some of you have been in ninth grade English, but I remember we had to learn this at Franklin High School when I was in ninth grade. The, the five-act dramatic structure of plays, I talk about this a lot, you know, every story has a narrative arc to it. There's a beginning and an ending. And, and the beginning is called the exposition. It's where the main character is introduced, the setting, you know. The, and then at the end of that act, uh, act one, there's a, a, a plot twist. There's, there's usually a, a conflict that's introduced that sets the plot in motion. Then you have rising action in act two. Then you have the climax. Then you have falling action. And then finally the resolution or the denouement right, as the high classy people like to say. The climax is that point in the story after which nothing will be the same. It's the turning point in the narrative. It's that part of the story, once you've reached it, there is no going back. Nothing will ever be the same again. And for us, we know that in the story of everything ever, the Bible shows us what these are, that Genesis 1 through 3 is the introduction, the exposition, the story of Israel, the covenant people. That's the next part, the, the covenant people one, the story of Israel. Then Jesus coming to earth, giving us words of life. John 6 says that he's given us the words of life. He's broken his, the bread, and now he's about to break his body for us. And that's the, the turning point in the whole story because in this moment, Christ will deal a death wound to Satan. He will crush his head by taking the sins of you and me upon his own shoulders and nailing them to a cross. We know that in this climactic moment, it's the turning point in the narrative. It looked like evil was winning. And from this point on, evil is defeated finally once and for all leading to Act 4, which is our part, Covenant People 2, the church, the new covenant people. Every time we drink the cup and break the bread together, we proclaim the new covenant of Christ and his blood. And we're looking forward to Act 5, the new creation, when Jesus comes back and breaks into our world with a million angel armies behind him and ready for the reckoning to say, enough, no more, and make everything new once and for all. I love that line in that hymn that Christ takes these broken vessels and makes us new. That, man, that was powerful, good, good hymn for today. Thank you. It's time. It's time for the climax. So what does Jesus ask for in this climactic moment? What's he praying for God to do in it? He prays that in the climax of the story that he would be used by the Father to fully display God's beauty God's love and ultimately God's glory. To whom? To the world. He says, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. He prays that God would reveal his majesty, his dominion, his authority, his glory into the world 
that he would show the world that he is indeed ultimately glorious and therefore worthy of all honor and praise and glory. That's really the point, I think, of these first five verses. Jesus is not really praying for himself, not like I would pray for myself. He's not asking to be spared the pain of the crucifixion. That's what I would ask for. God, don't let it hurt. He doesn't ask God to make it quick. He doesn't ask God to not embarrass him. He just asks that God's glory would be revealed, which is what Jesus did when he was on earth. Look at verse four. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was that work? He said it in verse two. It was to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus had authority to glorify the Father in his ministry by giving eternal life. And what is eternal life? He says here, again, it's knowing God, knowing Christ, intimately knowing God to the point that we would pray like Jesus prays here to our Father, like a child talking to their dad. This is eternal life. This is abundant life, to know God in that kind of relationship. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3? Philippians 3, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may, what? Know him and the power of his resurrection. Everything that Jesus did on earth was so that this would be fulfilled, so that we would know him, that we would know God and his surpassing worth that makes everything else in this world look dim and fade away. And now that work is coming to a close and Jesus will soon be returning to the Father's side. He will take back up the glory which he let down in order to take on flesh and dwell among us and become human. That's why he prays in verse five, and now Father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word that became flesh, the word that was with God and the word that was God before all time is returning to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. And that glory that he has in his return will be even more glorious because he will have accomplished the work which he was sent here to do. So now it's the disciples' turn. It's their part in the story as act three comes to a close and act four begins. Jesus is setting the tone for how act four should be completed. Many of the commentaries say that in verses six through 19 in this text, that Jesus is praying for his remaining 11 disciples. And that verses 20 through 26, which we'll talk about next week, are for us, the future followers of Jesus, but 
I would argue again that his words here in, in verses 6 through 19 are for anyone who follows Christ, including us today. That we are in the direct legacy of the disciples. God has given us to Christ, just like he gave the disciples to Jesus. And we are his followers. And Jesus has passed on the same things to us that he passed on to his disciples. Look at verse 8. What has he given us? For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus has given us the word of truth. He's, he's shown us reality, not as the world sees it, but as God sets it, revealed the Holy Scriptures to us now which he doesn't say, sanctify them in truth, your word is true. He doesn't say your word is true. That's what I would say. He says your word is truth. It is the very definition of truth. You don't just describe this by some other standard. It is the standard by which all other truths should be judged as true or not. So it gives us this word, and when we accept that word as divine reality, as the, the highest form of truth, when we acknowledge that Jesus is actually God's divine son, sent by a loving father to redeem this fallen world back into himself, then we become the church, just like the first disciples did. The church is this whole new thing that's beginning to take shape here in the upper room. The church is going to be the physical body of Jesus Christ on earth when he returns back to his rightful place in heaven. It's gonna be this family. It's gonna be a special community, a special group of people, the sons and daughters of the king who belong to God now. They're adopted out of the orphanage of this world to a good, good, loving father and, and are brought into the royal family of the king by grace through faith. So there were, we're no longer orphans. Therefore, we should no longer resemble the orphans of this world around us. But we are still in the world and therefore, we're subject to the influence of evil in the ways of this world and then the ruler of the air, as Paul calls him, our enemy. So Jesus prays for them, for the disciples and for us, that we would remain uninfluenced by that evil, that we would remain holy and separate. Look at verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. It's almost like Jesus is praying, let them honor the family name. Don't let them bring shame upon the family name. Why? Look at the rest of the verse. That they may be one, even as Jesus and God are one. The church is supposed to reflect the unity that God the Father and God the Son possess. We all have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. This special family too, this church, you see 
we're supposed to have unity because we were created for a specific purpose. God had a plan for the body of Christ when he was forming the church. Is it so that we could be saved and go to heaven? No, actually, that's not the purpose for the church. If that was the case, then why not go the route of Jim Jones and Jonestown and just drink the Kool-Aid? We've been saved from hell and death. Yes, that's true. But we've also been saved for a reason. We're here for a reason. We're here to do what Jesus did when he was here, to glorify the Father, to tell the world what we've been given by Jesus, the ultimate reality of the way, the truth, and the life. When we do that, when we play our part in God's story, then we find the joy of Christ. It was Jesus' joy, remember, it was his joy to go to the cross. Not because he loved suffering, he wasn't sadistic. It's because he knew that in the cross he would defeat sin and Satan forever. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus prays here in verse 13 that that same joy would be ours. Christianity is not a religion of like, act right, don't have any fun. You know, Christians, Christians usually tell the world, look, I know Christianity can be a little strict, but we're just as cool as the world. We have as much fun. That's, that's lame. We're not trying to be some version of what the world has. We have a deeper and more ultimate joy than anything that the world offers. And Jesus prays that we would have that joy. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Our, our religion is, is not about trying to be cool like the world, and, and neither is it about trying to, to follow the rules to the point that we can go to heaven and be good enough for God. Nothing that we do gets us into heaven. Only Christ's perfect righteousness does. Christianity is about the gospel, the good news that God is making all things new through Jesus, including you and me, and that good news brings abundant life and joy even in the midst of a world that's full of tribulation. Jesus, Jesus doesn't pray that we would be taken out of the world. Verse 15, you know, he doesn't pray that there would be some quick and painless rapture, that we would all just be taken up immediately. You know, I, I love the song, I'll Fly Away. If you've ever been to the Ryman Auditorium and heard a proper bluegrass rendition of I'll Fly Away, huddled around a microphone, you know, full of harmonies, and it's just a great bluegrass song. But it is terrible theology. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't want to ruin it for you. I love it. I do. But the theology is really bad, and it's maybe even dangerous to an extent. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. To that home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. Great tune. Bad theology. God has us here for a reason. It's not about escaping this fallen world. The, 
Jesus doesn't pray that we'd be popular either. He doesn't pray that it would be easy to exist as his people. He doesn't pray that the mission would just kind of work itself out either. The ways of God and the ways of the world are diametrically opposed to each other. So for us to capitulate to the ways of the world would be against what we know to be good and right and true. What Jesus does pray for is that we would be so fully invested in the mission and so sanctified, that means set apart and made holy, by the truth about who God is that Jesus has revealed to us, that we might be able to effectively live out our calling as God's people on the earth, as faithfully as Jesus lived out his calling. God sent Jesus into the world on a rescue mission to bring it back all to himself and redeem this fallen world. And now we are sent by God to play our part in the process. Franchaka says that we are to be agents of reconciliation, agents of redemption. I like those spy movies. We're like secret agents who are sent into a foreign land to serve as agents of redemption and reconciliation and recreation, all those good rewords, proclaiming the good news of the gospel to our neighbors and to the world. So in the world, but not of the world, is, is that really the right mentality? Is that what Jesus prays? David Mathis says it well in his article, the, the motto in the world, but not of the world, would, could seem to give the drift. We're in this world, but alas, what we really need to do is make sure that we're not of it. In this way of configuring things, the starting place is our unfortunate condition of being in this world. Sigh. And our mission, it appears, is to not be of it. So the force is moving away from the world. Rats, we've, we're frustratingly stuck in this old world, but let's marshal our best energies to not be of it. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. That's normally how that, that phrase is used, but it's not correct. <coughs> Read it for yourselves. Look at verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Yes, it's clear in verses 14 and verses 16 that, that we're not supposed to be of the world. That, that, that is true. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the end. That's not the goal. It's a starting point. It's, it's going somewhere. Yes, we're not of the world. That's where we begin. But it's, it's heading somewhere. Again, as, as David Mathis says, Jesus is not huddling up the team for another round of kumbaya, but so that we can run the next play and advance the ball down the field. There's a game that we're in, a game where the stakes are life and death, and we have work to do to advance that ball down the field. We're not just 
huddling up to say we're different from the world, let's sing another round of Kumbaya. We're not just adopted out of the orphanage, we're sent back into it once we're adopted in order to bring down the whole messed up system of orphanages. Jesus doesn't pray for this escape for us. We're sent as secret agents of reconciliation. Mathis concludes thusly, Jesus' true followers have not only been crucified to the world, but also raised to new life and sent back to free others. We've been rescued from the darkness and given the light, not merely so that we could flee the darkness, but so that we can guide our steps in going back to the darkness to rescue others. It's not in but not of, it's not of but sent into. It's not in the world but not of the world, it's true that we're not of the world now that we're in Christ, yes, but we're sent back into the world to play our part in God's redemptive purposes for this world. Will you answer that call today and say, Lord, here am I. Use me, send me. Maybe you've been caught up in the world again. Maybe the problem is that you're not of the world at all, that you are more worldly than you'd like to admit and believe. You know, in those Matrix movies, I realize that teenagers haven't seen them anymore because they were made in the 90s, but in the Matrix movies, humans are enslaved by robots and they're kept asleep and dormant uh, in this system called the Matrix. And this one group of rebels is waking people up to reality, to fight the robots that have taken over the, the world. And one guy, the saddest part in the movie, is where one guy who's been woken up says, I, I don't like this life. I wanna go back to sleep. I wanna go back to the matrix, put me back in. It's not what I signed up for. The real world is scary, there's pain. I like my fake life better. Maybe some of you are chasing after a fake life and you'd rather have the fake life than the real life. That's a tragic, tragic mistake that so many people fall for all the time. Life is hard. Maybe today you need to be woken up again. Maybe today you need to realize what 1 Peter 2 says about us as a church in verse nine. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Lord God, I know so many of us are so tempted by the things of this world that we chase after the things of this world because we have forgotten the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Wake us up again. May we remember our starting point is to be not of the world. We're to be different. It's so different how we operate. I was trying to explain to my son that we don't play certain video games because we're not like the rest of the world. God, you've called us to be different. 
God, I pray that we would remember that today, that we would live in the, the stark, bleak reality sometimes of this fallen world. But then that would just be a starting point. May we launch from that place of reality into your redemptive purposes and find joy, the same joy that led Jesus to the cross. May we joyfully surrender, whether that means moving to Korea for 20 years of our lives, or that means maybe tithing for the first time. Maybe it means teaching a Sunday school class. Maybe it means finally speaking to our neighbors who we've been avoiding about Jesus. Maybe it means inviting that coworker who's lost and searching to women's Bible study or to worship one Sunday morning. Maybe it means joining this church. Maybe it means surrendering our lives for the first time to your call to be your child and be adopted out of this orphanage of the world for the first time. God, whatever it is that you're calling us to do today, we know it will take sacrifice. We know that we will necessarily have to lay our own lives down, but your word tells us that anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses their life for your sake will find it. I pray that we would know the joy that comes in surrender today as we trust you more and more and as we live into the obedience that you've called us to obey. God, we love you. We pray these things in the precious, powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to stand and have a time of uh, invitation and sing, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. If there's a decision that you need to make today, maybe the Lord's put something on your heart and you just need to come pray about it and you just wanna come uh, to the altar today. I'm gonna ask Trey if you'll come, Jan if you'll come uh, up front. If you wanna pray with one of these uh, prayer warriors, they'll be here to receive you. You could just kneel at the altar if you just wanna pray here. Maybe it's something that you need to do and join this church. Maybe you need to become a member of Woodmont Baptist Church and say, I'm in, I'm committed. I realize it's not a perfect church and guess what? There are no perfect churches because they're full of people but God is sanctifying us day by day, making us new as broken vessels are, have this treasure in them uh, inside these jars of clay. If that's you today and you need to come forward and join this church, I'll be here to receive you too. Maybe you need to accept Jesus Christ for the first time in your life. There's no better time than to do it right now than to come accept the free gift of salvation that, that God offers us through faith in Jesus. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing, trust and obey.